In academic circles, there's a book that's hot. Or shall I say it's an essay? It was written by a Japanese-American scholar by the name of Francis Fukuyama. The name of this essay is The End of History. In this essay, which is talked about from one end of this country to the other, I mean, if you go to Harvard, if you go to Stanford, you go to the University of Chicago, whenever the intellectuals get together, they talk about this essay. It is the seminal essay of the decade. This essay, The End of History, has had books written about it, symposiums, seminars held about it. It's that important an essay. Fukuyama has a simple thesis. Here it is. History, he says, is built on great ideas. He's what we call a neo-Hegelian philosopher. Neo-Hegelian philosophers believe that history is, is propelled by great ideas. A great idea comes along, a society wraps itself around that idea, and expresses that idea in its total cultural system. When that idea is exhausted, a new culture comes along with a new idea. And that new society lives out the new idea. So history is a succession of great ideas, each of which has been incarnated in a society expressed in the culture. That being the case, says Fukuyama, we have come to the end of history. Because the last great idea, he says, has been expressed. The last great idea has been communicated. There are no new ideas to appear on the human scene. The future indefinitely will be wrapped around this last great idea of human history. And of course, everybody sits there and says, okay, Campolo, what is the last great idea of history? Here it is. Fukuyama says, it's democratic capitalism. You say, that's it? That is the last great idea? Before you get to epity, consider the fact that the two ideological challenges to democratic capitalism in the 20th century have been dashed to pieces. Fascism during the 30s, and in our own time, we have seen that Marxist socialism has been blown out of the waters. Nobody can compete, nothing can compete against democratic capitalism. All the new nations emerging in what was the Soviet Union are trying to be democratic capitalistic states. In Latin America, in Africa, all the nations are aspiring to imitate our system. If the Japanese seem to be ahead of America, it's only because the Japanese are more American than America. That's true, you know. They have imitated our work ethic and have beaten it at it us at it. They have, they have beaten us at organization. They work harder. All the values of America are now embraced by the Japanese and are lived out. Democratic capitalism is the wave of the future. And I know what you're going to say. Yippee, we won. Cold War is over and we won. Before you get too thrilled, I want us to examine it all for a little while. What has made democratic capitalism so successful? The answer is this. No system conceivable is able to produce more things at a lower price than a democratic capitalistic economy. We produce more things than anybody. That's why the Berlin Wall came down. It's not because the people in East Germany hungered for the truth that the West Germans had. It's because they had stores and had nothing to sell. And in the West, the shelves of the shops were full. Somebody came through the Berlin Wall when it was first cracked and painted on it 
We came. We saw. We did a little shopping. <laughs> and in a real sense, that's what it was all about, wasn't it? It was about consumerism. We produce so much. Now that creates a problem. You say, what kind of problem? It's this. How do we buy all the stuff that we produce? You see, our production machine in this democratic capitalistic society is so efficient that the people who have money can't buy all the stuff that it produces. We've got a problem on our hands. How do we buy what American industry produces? Because if we don't buy it, the factories will close down, the economy will shut down, America will come to an end. Do you understand that it is your patriotic responsibility to buy stuff? You say, but, but I already have everything I need. Of course you do. What's that got to do with it? The truth is that the success of America depends on people like you and me buying what we don't need in larger and larger quantities. Please don't argue with me on this one. When Christmas comes, you'll have ample evidence. Your problem will not be, where will I get the money to buy Christmas presents? That will not be your problem. This will be your problem. What do I buy for somebody who has everything? Well, the answer to that's obvious. What should you buy for people who have everything? But you don't have the guts to pull it off, do you? You don't have the guts to come down Christmas morning, look at the family and say, nobody is getting anything because everybody's got everything. No, this is what you will do. You will go to the department store, wander up and down the aisles, panic-stricken, looking, searching, yea, even praying that somebody, somewhere, invented something that nobody needs so you can buy it for the person who has everything. Is this not true? Half the stuff that you buy didn't even exist 50 years ago. They're inventing stuff that nobody needs every day so that you can buy it. Now, let me just say, we've got a problem on our hands. We've got to buy stuff we don't need in larger and larger quantities. Now, how do they get people who have money to buy what they don't need? Good question. The answer is advertising. Our advertising is brilliant. But our advertising is a bit deceptive. The ads no longer tell us anything about the product. I remember when I was a kid, there was a Life Boy soap ad. You look like you're old enough to remember that ad. Do you remember that? They held up a bar of Life Boy soap and they simply said, here's the ad. Life Boy gets rid of, and with a foghorn, you would hear them go, B-O, that was it. <laughs> I mean, that's all they said about the soap. It gets rid of body odor. No ads are designed that way anymore. All the ads are designed to get you to believe that if you buy the product, the deepest spiritual hungers of your soul will be gratified. Listen to these. Buick is something you can believe in. You thought it was an automobile. Didn't you? You thought it was an automobile. It's not an automobile. It's a religious conviction. There's a beer ad that I love. These guys are by a stream of water in the woods. And this deep, melodious voice comes in singing. Here's to good friends. Tonight is kind of special. It's got an upper room quality to it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Little point in there. And then the guy who's cooking the fish, get this, reaches and grabs a can of beer off the six-pack, tears it, pulls off the tab, 
holds up the can of beer, and this is what he says to the people. You know, guys, it doesn't get any better than this. We are talking about a can of beer. I mean, this guy is in eschatological euphoria. It doesn't get any better than this. I can't be. But the most famous ad of time in history, they're on top of a hill. They're from Bosnia and Herzegovina. They're from South Africa, black and white. They're from Asia. They're from Latin America. They're all there on this hilltop, dressed in their native costumes, holding hands, singing together, going to teach the world to sing. Get this, in perfect harmony. And what is it? that brings about what the UN could not? What is it that facilitates what not even the day of Pentecost made a reality? I'll tell you what brings perfect harmony to broken humanity is what? Coca-Cola. And in case you think it's not real, they even add, it's the real thing. Please note that the ads are constructed to convince us that we can have love and harmony, we can have fellowship and friendship. We can have fulfillment in life. We can have something to believe in if we just buy a lot of things that we don't need. Jesus had it easy. See, Jesus said there are material things that provide material gratifications. There are spiritual things that will provide spiritual gratifications. We are the first society that has dared to suggest that there are material things that will gratify spiritual hungers. And because the ads are so effective, we're ready to kill ourselves to get the money to buy the stuff that we don't need in order to give it to people who have everything. I mean, let's be honest. Husbands and wives don't have time to be with each other anymore. Marriages fall apart, not because of adultery, but simply from lack of time. The typical husband and wife speak to each other a total of 10 minutes a day. Did you get that? 10 minutes a day. You can't build relationships on 10 minutes a day. We don't have time for marriages. We don't have time for our children. The typical American father speaks to his child four and a half minutes a day. Four and a half minutes a day. Why do you even bother having them? Four and a half minutes of talk. That's all that the typical American father provides. You see, we don't have time to talk to our kids. We don't have time to talk to our mates. We're too busy working and working and working in order to get enough money to buy all this stuff that we don't need in order to give it to people who have everything. If you don't argue with me on this, don't argue with me. Go to your kid's room, look around the room, and see all the stuff there that nobody needs. I have had kids sit in my office at Eastern College having ruined their lives on something and their mother and father sitting up opposite them with tears running down their cheeks and the mother will say something like this how could you have done this and you can almost finish the sentence after all we've done for you and I always look at them and say cut it what did you do for them, this child what did you do please explain to me what you've done and they will start talking about all the things they bought. And I say to them, don't you understand? You were obligated to give them much more than stereos and bikes 
and records and clothes and Nike sneaking. You owed them yourself and you never gave it to them. You had no time. You were tricked and seduced by a system that got you to believe that the fullness of life would be provided if you just got all of these things that nobody needed. Now let me just say that the cost is frightening. We don't pay attention to our marriages. We don't raise our children. I happen to be one of those persons that's solidly behind daycare for an obvious reason. Almost half of the children in this country are growing up in single-parent homes. If you don't have daycare, what do you suggest? We need daycare. But I've got to tell you, I cannot, for the life of me, figure out why parents who could raise their own children turn those children over to strangers. No, I said parents. I'm beyond that place where I think that raising kids is a woman's responsibility. I believe that raising children is a biparental responsibility. And I want to know why parents aren't raising their kids. Why they would turn their kids over to perfect strangers. Don't you know that in the first three or four years of life, the child's very disposition to life, the categories of apperception, his total outlook, his emotional structure will all be defined? Don't you want to be the one that defines them? Don't you want to be there to watch that kid take his first steps? Don't you want to be there to listen to the first words? When I was teaching at the university, secondary university, I remember going to the faculty get-togethers. They would always get me. Always get me. And they would say to me and my wife, all kinds of strange things. But they would say to my wife, and what is it that you do? There'd always be some woman sociologist. What is it that you do, my dear? And my wife, who was the most articulate person I have ever met, had this incredible comeback. She would say, I am socializing two homo sapiens into the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition in order that they might be the instruments for the transformation of the social order into the kind of eschatological utopia that God willed from the beginning of creation. And then she would always look back and say, and what is it that you do? And the other woman would say, I'm, I'm a sociologist. You know... There is nothing more noble than raising children. There is nothing more noble than that. It's not a woman's job. It's the job of both parents. But we don't have time to raise kids. We don't have time for marriage. We don't have time for anything. We're too busy trying to get enough money to buy all the stuff that we don't need so we can give it to people who have everything. There's a price to be paid. Not only do our marriages go down the tubes, not only do our kids go down the tubes, but listen to this carefully. Our dreams and our visions go down the tubes. I had a young man, he's a student of mine at Eastern College where I teach, Christian College. I took him with me to Haiti. I took him to a medical center up in the northern part of the country. I showed him a hospital where 700 people had lined up that morning for medical care. There was only one doctor and two nurses. They only could take care of 100 people. The other 600 were turned away. And when my students saw that, he said, Doc, I'm going to go back. I'm going to complete my education. I'm going to become a doctor. And I'm going to come back here. And I'm going to serve these people. That's my dream. That's the vision that God gave me. 
Well, I met him in New York last year. And he's a doctor. But he's not taking care of people in Haiti. You know what he's doing? Cosmetic surgery on women. Please, sometimes that's necessary. But for the most part, what he is doing is a sheer absurdity. But you see, there's a lot of money to be made in doing cosmetic surgery for women. Much more money than saving lives in Haiti. And so a dream was vanquished. A vision was obliterated. And my Bible says this, that when the young no longer have their dreams and the old no longer have their visions, the people perish. The death of dreams and visions. And I see that deadness. Everywhere I go in the world, I see dead people. Sorry, Kierkegaard said it this way. This age will die, not because of sin, but from lack of passion. Oh, how true. How true. We don't even sin with passion anymore. That's what I like about Shakespeare. And that's what I like about the Bible. Those people in the scriptures, they knew how to sin. I mean, Lady Macbeth with blood dripping from her hands, yelling, out, out, damn spot. Now there is a sinner. And, and, and you take David, who could spit in the face of God. You may not approve of it, but you've got to respect his guts. I mean, this is rebellion against God. Now that's passion. Most sin isn't even that. Most sin is not a passionate rebellion against God. It's simply conformity to what the other people around you are doing. How many times do I talk to a kid who's on drugs and say, how did you get into this? And I get this stupid response. All the other kids were doing it. Please don't call it sin. It's too anemic to be called sin. Sin is passionate. Kids don't understand that. They're too busy being. Are you ready for this? Cool. Cool. Isn't that the word? They have worshipped the word cool. Man, I'm cool, baby. Here's what the Bible says. Jesus speaks to us and declares, I wish that you were either hot or cold. But if you're cool, I spew thee out of my mouth. Cool. A whole generation devoid of passion, devoid of emotion. How many times do you watch television and see some horrendous crime? Horrendous crime, where a young man kills his mother and father and three or four other people. And the commentator says this, and when the verdict was pronounced, the defendant showed no emotion. No emotion. Students often accuse me when I'm in the class, you know, really laying it on. They say, you know, Campolo, what you're preaching is a lot of emotionalism. Of course. Of course. Please understand, I want a God that I can feel. And I want to be alive with passion. I want to seize the day and live it with total intensity. And Kierkegaard said, this age will die from lack of passion. Isn't it true? I got on an elevator in a high-rise apartment in New York City. It was filled with dead people. Did you ever get on an elevator filled with dead people? They were just standing there dead. And as the doors closed, I said to myself, who are these dead people? <laughs> Maybe I'm dead. If we're dead, 
where are we going? I was relieved when the elevator went up. As the door closed, I did what you're not supposed to do. I turned and faced the crowd. You know, people are used to getting on elevators, right? Turning, facing the door, and looking at the numbers. So the next time you get on an elevator, get on. And as the door closes, turn around and just smile at everybody. It blows them away. They do not know how to handle this. And I said, um, lighten up. We're going to be traveling together for quite a while. It's a 74 Express. You could just see, in New York, you could just see these guys back, back. I said, lighten up, guys. I said, what do you say? We sing. And these suckers were so intimidated by me, they did. I mean, you should have been there. They're going, you are my sunshine, my only son. I got off at the 70th floor. This guy got off with me. I said, are you going to the same meeting I'm going to? He said, no. He said, I just wanted to finish the song. Please, people, please understand the world is dead. And I consider it my God-given responsibility to resurrect the dead wherever I go. Oh, the deadness of the world. The, the, I teach. Students are dead. That's one of the scariest things about kids. I don't know whether any of you guys are youth leaders in churches. I pity you. You go in there with the guitar, the kids are in the circle saying, All right, kids, let's sing! They are dead. Go in. I used to do high school assemblies. I used to like it. I don't like it anymore. Not because the kids misbehave. I used to be able to handle that. It's that they sit there. Dead. You can stand up in front of class, pour your heart out for truth. Truth wrenched from existential pain and suffering. Some kid will raise his hand and says... Do we have to know this for the final? <laughs> Everywhere I go, I find people who are dead. I was speaking at UCLA, and I really got hot and bothered. And at one point, I yelled at the students and said, I'm 58, you're 23, and I am younger than you are. Because people are as young as their dreams and as old as their cynicism. And you're cynical. You don't have any dreams. Oh, I'm right. They come out of high school. You ask them. You're graduating from high school, Charlie. What are you going to do? What are you going to be? What does the kid say? I don't know. So if the kid has no purpose, no goals, no directions, what do you do with him? You send him to college. Four years later, $50,000 poorer, you ask the question again. You're graduating from college, Charlie. What are you going to do? What are you going to be? What does he say? Not if he goes to a good school like Eastern. He doesn't say, I don't know. He says, I'm keeping all of my options open. <laughs> Which is the same thing as saying what? You got it. They have no goals. They have no directions. They have no purposes. Because they have understood their lives in terms that we in the church have given them. We've told them to go to school for what reason? Stay in school. Don't drop out of school. Get a good education. Because if you get a good education, you'll be able to get a... And if you get a good job, you'll be able to get a lot of... And if you've got a lot of money, you will be able to get a lot of... Things that you don't need. 
Is it any wonder? Please don't get me wrong. I want kids to stay in school. I want them to get a good education. But the purpose of an education is not to get a job in order to make the money to buy the stuff that you don't need. The purpose of an education is to be equipped to serve other people in the name of Christ and with his passionate love. That's why we should be educated. Study to show yourselves approved unto God. Not to get a better job. You say, you, you're anti-materialist. No, I'm not anti-materialist. I am just saying that God has created you for something more important than a lot of things. He created you to do something splendid with your life. Something miraculous with your life. When I say people are dead, I really mean it. Go into any restaurant. Look around. There'll be a young couple. They're not married yet. You know they're not married because they're laughing and they're joking and they just think each other are the most wonderful people they've ever met. They're so wrapped up. In the, I mean, they laugh so much you wish they would calm down so you can carry on your conversation. And then you look around and there's another couple. And nobody has to tell you that they've been married for 20 years. They are sitting there. And they have nothing to say. They just sit there. Dead. And it's not because of years. Age has nothing to do with it. Abraham. Abraham was 95 years old. When he woke up one morning and shook his wife and said... Sarah, poor old lady, she's 92. Okay. I've got a vision. Now there's a whole new approach, you know. I... <laughs> poor old lady says, what kind of vision, Abe? We're going to create a new nation, a new people, a new humanity. You and I together are going to create a new epoch in human history. Poor old lady. How's this new humanity start, Abe? Glad you asked, Sarah. The next scene is one of the greatest in the Bible. The scripture says in the 11th chapter of Hebrews that Abraham and Sarah left the Ur of the Chaldees. I love this. Not knowing where they were going. Can't you just see it? This old man... 94, walking, probably with a walker. Alongside of him is 92-year-old pregnant wife. Do not tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Can't you just see it? Where are you going, Abe? I don't know. What are you going to do? I don't know. Then why are you leaving? Because God has given me a vision. Let me tell you. That Jesus not only died on the cross to take away your sins. And he sent the Holy Spirit into your life not only to sanctify you. But Jesus and the Spirit invade you. In order to give you visions and dreams. Visions and dreams. I had a student. His name's Brian Stevenson. They featured him on 2020. They've written him up in the Washington Post. He graduated from Eastern, top of the class. Went to Harvard Law School. Graduated again, top of the class. A young, handsome, brilliant, articulate, African-American man. Have you any idea what a graduate of Harvard Law School 
who is African-American is able to earn in a law firm a quarter of a million dollars easily. You know what he's doing? He's in a one-room flat. A one-room flat in Montgomery, Alabama. And every morning he gets up and he goes down to the jailhouse and defends the men and women on death row for free. And I said to him, don't you believe in the death penalty? He said, Campolo, get off it. You know that it's got nothing to do with that. It has to do with this. There are two kinds of law in this country. One kind of law for the rich and the powerful. And another kind of law for the poor and the oppressed. We don't put criminals to death in America. We put poor people to death in America. Because the poor, the poor have no one to speak for them. And then he stopped and he said, except in Montgomery, Alabama. Because in Montgomery, Alabama, Doc, I speak for the poor. And Doc, I'm good. <laughs> oh, Brian, you don't know how good you are. A young man who would not sell out to the system. A young man who had a dream and had a vision that God had called him to do something significant with his life. And he was not about to be lured by things that nobody needs and to spend his life getting enough money to buy things for people who have everything. The guy's a dreamer. And he's seizing his life and recognizing here only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Jesus will last. Seizing the day. Seizing the day. And I look at you and I ask a very simple question. When did you let the dream die? When did you let the vision slip away from you? You remember you once had it. I don't know where it hit you. Maybe it was at a Baptist revival meeting when they were singing a thousand verses of Just As I Am or a Presbyterian retreat where they were singing 500 verses of Kumbaya. I don't know where it was. But somewhere, someplace, God spoke to you and said... Risk everything and come and follow me. Drop those stupid nets and burn out your life in a dream and in a vision. And of course, you know what they're going to say. Be realistic, Campolo. Realistic. I hate the real world. It's boring. There's nothing wrong with being a yuppie, except that yuppies are so stinking boring. Give me a dreamer who knows how to skip and dance and laugh and, and attempt impossible things for God. Isn't there something great that God wanted you to do? 
and they put you in a box and wouldn't let you do it. You know what's wrong with this generation? They don't have any good songs. See, I grew up in the 60s where they had good songs. We had Pete Seeger singing, little boxes, little boxes, little boxes made of ticky-tack, little boxes on the hillside, little boxes all the same, a brown one, a blue one, a white one, a yellow one, and they're all made out of ticky-tack, and they all look just the same. And the people in the boxes all went to the university where they all were put in boxes, little boxes all the same, and there are doctors and lawyers and business executives, and they're all made out of ticky-tack. Remember the song? And they all look just the same. And they, children, go to summer camp and then do the university. And they're all put into boxes, little boxes, all the same. And a voice echoes down the corridors of time and says this. Be not conformed to this world. A voice speaks even now to each of us. And says, I beg of you, I plead with you, I beseech you, brothers and sisters. By the mercies of God. That you offer yourselves up as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. Don't let the world box you in. But be ye transformed by the Spirit of God. I.e., live out the dream. Live out the vision. There are so many dead people around. Have you ever been on a date? And you're halfway through the date. And you realize this woman isn't there. Did you ever have that feeling? Most people are absent when they're present. <laughs> Most people are so cautiously tiptoeing through life. There's no point to it. They tiptoe through life just so that they can arrive at death safely. <laughs> people, here's what the carpe diem thing is all about. There's a vision and there's a dream. You know you have one. You know that there was something splendid that God wants you to do with your life. Don't allow yourself to get sucked in by this last great idea of history. Don't get sucked into a lifestyle that is organized around getting enough money to buy enough things for people who have everything. Dream and live. you. Don't sell out. I was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania. I had a class of 1,500 students. And I was in the middle of the lecture. This was back in the 60s. And a counterculture kid stood up. You could tell he was counterculture. He was wearing khakis and he had huge amounts of hair. I hate hair. <laughs> and he looked at me and he yelled, bull. I won't finish it. You know what he mean. Bull doo-doo. I said, you, you're in trouble. He said... He said, who cares? I said, I'm going to throw you out of this class. He said, who cares? I said, if you get thrown out of this class, you're out of this course. He said, who cares? I didn't push it. It was the 60s. If I said, you get thrown out of this course, you get thrown out of this school, he would have yelled, who cares? you get thrown out of this school, you won't be able to get a job. 60s. He would have yelled, what? Who cares? You don't have a job. You won't have any money. He would have yelled, what? Who cares? You don't have any money. You won't be able to buy. All the things you don't need. People. To be a Christian is to commit yourself to the vision 
that God has already given you and saying to the world and everything that it's trying to sell you, saying at the top of your lungs, be not conformed to this world. Fukuyama was wrong. The last great idea of history is not democratic capitalism. This is the last great idea of history. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Choose ye this day which kingdom you will live in. Democratic, capitalistic America, or will you be a citizen of the other kingdom? It's your decision to make. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Don't let the opportunity slip by. God bless you.